what is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Lily Ryan, a lead security specialist at ThoughtWorks. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities, safety and security, public and private spaces, the ghost in the machine, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Lily Ryan is a lead security specialist at ThoughtWorks and also serves on the board of Digital Rights Watch. Lily has delivered presentations across the globe on web application security, privacy education, and the history of technology-related issues. You can catch her talking security on the DevSlop show or occasionally having opinions on Bite Into It. And with that, Lily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. I highly appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me here. (laughs) And let's jump right into it. What is a computational etymologist? <laughs> yeah, I put that in my Twitter bio, computational entomologist, because I wanted a fancy way to say that I look at software bugs and I thought that was a funny way of writing it. I've had one person contact me asking if I was an actual entomologist, if I studied bugs for real. I think they were a bit disappointed that I don't, but I do think bugs are pretty cool, both, you know, the life version and the digital version. Why? Why do I think bugs are cool? Oh, they're so fascinating. I mean, you see them up close and they just look like little aliens. They never look like how you expect. They do all sorts of really interesting things in the world. You know, they do a lot of really fundamental things for our ecosystem. And I think they look really cool. Could you talk a little bit about your history? How did you and why did you turn from history to computers? Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's an interesting one. I've always been really interested in computers and tech generally, and I've dabbled around the edges, but I wanted to do a degree in history. I thought that that was what I would be best at. And, you know, I was naturally inclined towards languages and the humanities and the arts and that kind of thing. And I didn't think that I was any good at sciences or anything technical. And I thought that if I studied that at university, then it probably wouldn't go very well for me. I just never thought I had much aptitude for it, but I ended up doing a lot of tinkering myself in my own time outside of this, playing with Linux and things like that, and just learning quietly on my own time. And I think without anybody assessing me or without anybody watching, it made it a lot more relaxed and I was able to learn a lot more from that. And after I graduated and after I was sort of looking for a job for a while, honestly, I think that the software industry and tech in general has some really interesting problems in it. I think it also has some terrible problems in it, but I wanted to see what I could do to help make the space better. So now I'm a software security consultant. I've been a penetration tester, like an ethical hacker. I've been a software developer and I've worn lots of hats in teams, but my specialization has always been in security. We will get back to security. Let's go through with the, what does the future of cities mean to you? I mean, I'm also interested to know what you mean by cities. This reverse question has never occurred before. <laughs> What do I mean by cities? Well, cities are constructed by the built environment, but Mm -hmm. are made for and made up of people for me. So Mm. 
it's a combination and a collaboration between the beard, the natural and the human environment. Let's put it that way. Sure. For me, it's an always evolving system, which can be good, which can be bad. And that's why the podcast exists, because <laughs> if we want to have a good direction to this evolution, then we, I think, should be more conscious about helping this evolution to the good direction. If we are mm. not talking about this and not doing anything about the good evolution, then I think we will have a challenging time in the future. And since I see myself in the future, I don't really want to live, that, <laughs> live through those challenges. Yeah. Then what does the future of cities mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. We've arrived back at the same point. That was a nice <laughs> circumlocution we've got there. If you're talking about, you know, the interaction between humans and nature in the built environment, and for me as well, cities imply a sort of a concentration of humans and society as well. One person living by themselves in a house, I don't feel for me makes the definition of a city, although it is definitely human imposing themselves upon the space. And yeah, we're talking about sort of the way that human beings build environments for collectives of themselves in large groups. I mean, the entire world is a pretty interesting reflection of the way that we have treated sort of the habitat that we have already. And with the climate crisis becoming an increasingly pressing concern, I think that it's, you know, the future, as you say, could be a problem. And if we see ourselves in that future, we probably don't want to. We would like to avoid those kinds of issues. In terms of our built environment and the way that we're dealing with that, I can see the future going a few different ways. And there's the way that we go if nothing changes and we keep doing what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I'm not a social scientist and I'm also not an architect the way you are or anything like that. But I see a focus on, you know, building in more denser spaces, building up, but there's still that desire to also build outwards and cover off everything. Then we reach the outer areas where there are lots more fires, disasters, particularly in Australia, in Melbourne where I am, and we see that a lot. And then the coastal areas becoming problems. But for me, the most interesting part of the cities is the way that we infuse them with the technologies that we've got, and we've always done this. I think about you know what I've read of Victorian era cities and gas lamps and the development of public infrastructure like gas lamps and sewers and things like that that were revolutionary at the time. Or like the London Underground, which is fascinating because they started building that before they had thought of anything other than like steam trains. So it was a really smoky kind of inhospitable place to be, but they still wanted to do it anyway. And now, I mean, at least for me with my tech kind of lens, I'm thinking more about the way that we build technology into our environments in a digital way. And we have, there's this concept that's emerged over the last decade or so, probably longer. I'm not a scholar of this either, but the concept of smart cities becoming increasingly popular. And in the last five odd years, probably 10 odd years, but definitely the last five years, there has been a real push, I think, to declare everything to be a smart city. And if you put the word smart city in a proposal to a local government, you'll probably get funding because it's a great sort of buzz phrase. What everybody means by smart city is kind of ambiguous, but it generally tends to revolve around things like in Melbourne, for example, we have the smart rubbish bins, the smart public trash cans that will show you how full they are. And they all have, they're all Wi-Fi connected. <laughs> so if you look at a network, you can see the bins pinging each other and reporting back, which is kind of cool. Street lights that come on at certain hours and smart traffic lights that, you know, 
will tell the pedestrians when to cross automatically has been a thing, particularly since the pandemic started, so just to avoid contact with things. So that's been an interesting one. And then there's the other sort of side of this where it's also about surveillance and ensuring that you have everything covered by cameras all the time and you have that visibility, that you have public address systems that allow people to, particularly the authorities and law enforcement, to address people in cases where that's necessary. And a really interesting kind of hybridization of the public and private space when it comes to this kind of surveillance as well. Cameras, for example, pointing on public streets and then cameras inside shopping malls being owned by separate entities, but also able to work together to make a picture. And then, yeah, when we're talking about the private infrastructure, shopping malls are a thing that really interests me. I feel that we have, oh, you know, the big smart advertising screens, for example, with the big, you know, video ads on them that also many have cameras in the tops of them. Some of them have actually literally got Xbox Kinect in them. You can go and sometimes you can see them, depends on the company that makes them. But literal connects that will detect the way that you're moving in front of the ad and will try and infer things about your gender and your mood to show you more appropriate ads or to get data about who is walking past so that they can target those things. You know, a lot of it is turning into a data gathering exercise, like a lot of things are. And that can be used for good and for less good. I hesitate to say evil because that's got such a cartoonish vibe to it, but it can definitely be turned to ends that are not in everybody's best interests, but only serve the interests of some. The future of cities to me means if we don't do anything about it, probably increased surveillance, increased data gathering and turning the public sphere into something where people are surveilled and recorded rather than a place where people can meet and live and experience life without those kinds of feelings. And if we do do something about it, we have the opportunity to do some really great things, I think. So there are many opportunities, many possibilities for the future of cities. Mm. Mentioned ideas for smart projects in the city. Mm. What does the smart city mean to you? If it means anything. Yeah. (laughs) I kind of cringe at the way people use smart to talk about technology with embedded stuff in it. Cameras and microphones quite often. Because implying that they themselves are smart is also a lie. I think it lends this agency to a computer that it doesn't actually have. When you say a computer is smart or a device is smart, you're implying that device itself possesses some kind of intelligence. What it does is it's just really good at recording stuff. And any kind of logic or outcome that flows from what it hears or what it gathers is the result of other human beings making interpretations of that data, really, at the end of the day. And we shouldn't forget that when we're talking about smart anything that it's not about. I think it lends to the mythos of this objective computer that can 100% tell without fail some objective truths about human beings because nothing can. And so smart cities are also that kind of thing where I think it definitely erases the role that other human beings have to play in creating the spaces around us and deferring it all to, well, the technology said so. And that can be a really dangerous way to start thinking about things. So When we're talking about inputting sensors and devices into public spaces, which is what I would say comprises a smart city most of the time, we end up kind of erasing the decisions that get made by the humans who put them there and by the humans who interpret the data that comes out at the other end or who have decided what that data will mean for people. And there's like a whole whole bunch of stuff. The rubbish bin slash trash can thing is pretty harmless 
as far as things go. I mean, it's a really useful thing to know. How full is the bin before you put your rubbish in it? Does it need to be emptied? How regularly? That gives people really good information about how to maintain public infrastructure, for example. So I'm not here to say it's all bad and we should definitely not have any of it. I think that we can make it really work to our benefit. I think it's when it comes to surveilling people en masse, that's where for me, it becomes more of a problem. And so, yeah, the surveillance side of it is really the thing I keep coming back to is the part that I think will be really difficult for us to overcome and that has really damaging implications for the way that we exist in these spaces if we allow it to continue without checks and balances and questions. Such as? (laughs) I just talked myself into a corner. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I keep thinking about is facial recognition in this space and facial detection, which are two separate things, both of which are ingrained in a lot of smart city concepts where the benefits of this are, well, usually, you know, they say, well, we can tell where criminals are. And it's usually law enforcement saying this kind of thing. If we have this kind of software, we are then able to detect if a criminal is walking down the street and, you know, they should be in prison. And so we can then apprehend them. Or we can detect if a human has been here and then here and then here. And then if they later committed a crime, we have a picture of their movements more reliably than coming through hours of CCTV footage manually, which is very expensive to do in terms of human time. But that's also something that if anyone digs into facial recognition studies, you'll know one of the very first things you'll find is that it's very difficult to reliably tell human beings from one another Computers can be taught to do it, but they usually taught on data that is not gathered ethically in the first place and data that's also most often predisposed towards certain ethnic groups, particularly white people. It's usually better at detecting white faces because a lot of the time it's trained on mostly pictures of white people quite often. There are cases such as the case of, you know, systems that exist in, say, China, for example, where it is literally trained on the national ID system. So it's trained on specific people's faces. So it's actually quite good at detecting specific individuals because it has literally been trained on that database. But we don't have such a system in Australia. And the government does and has put out multiple proposals to build this kind of system. It feels like there's always one going on. It's been happening since at least the 80s, probably earlier. And if we were able to train it on that kind of system, then it would be a lot more accurate, but then also you wouldn't be able to stop it surveilling everybody, regardless of what they were doing. Even if people were going and, you know, just going about their business, going to the shops, going to the library, associating with whoever they want to, because we're allowed to do that. If we did have that kind of public infrastructure in place, or even that intersection of public and private infrastructure, where that kind of data is accessible in shopping malls, and that can be given to law enforcement as well, then people are no longer able to go anywhere without leaving a trace, which is not something that I think should be reserved just for people who are trying to hide something. I feel like there's a real human dignity element to that that often gets overlooked because it's very hard to measure human dignity. So people try not to talk about it too much, but that's where, you know, privacy comes from. The issues with smart cities are usually that erosion of the assumed privacy that you have when you move about a public space. You may have that kind of casual observation, particularly in smaller societies or societies where you're known really well, Say that you're in high school and you're skipping class one day to go shopping with some friends and a friend of your parents sees you out at the shops and then they tell your parents. You could say, well, you know, that was a case of surveillance of you moving about the space freely and having your actions reported on. But that's a very human scale of surveillance. This is talking about, say, that 
your parents' friends were able to go and search that database for anything you had ever done and compile a massive report to your parents of everything ever, which is quite a different proposition to somebody seeing you by chance. That happens. That's normal. But that gathering of data, just in case one day you happen to skip school, or if it had alerts thrown up because you skipped school one day, also, if you're in school, stay in school. But that really sort of, I think, has the ability to erode a lot of the happenstance of human interaction and and the way that society works. We shouldn't have to record everything everybody does just in case something is useful one day. There should be reasons for it. This is true of all data gathering in all contexts. We will not go through my original questions because these are so, so interesting. So um, (laughs) you connected human dignity with privacy. Mm. Is privacy part of this? Yeah. Privacy is one of those enshrined fundamental human rights that everybody's supposed to have, but in practice, we don't always. It's one of those, you know, in the Charter of Human Rights, privacy is there, and that's a global thing. But also in Australia, we don't have a Bill of Rights at all. We don't actually have the right to privacy or anything. That's super interesting. But it is one of those things that is sort of fundamental thing that all humans deserve to have. And there are trade-offs that can be made with privacy a lot of the time. We often make these trade-offs either for for convenience's sake or for security's sake. We've seen a lot of both in the last decade, longer. For convenience's sake, we'll often trade off our privacy by uploading our credit card details to, you know, random companies so that they store them on file so we can have like one-click payments to make something happen. Or allowing our faces or fingerprints to be entered into a database so that we can then be scanned in biometrically, for example. I should add that this is not the case with something like your iPhone because they have taken great steps to ensure that that data doesn't leave the device itself. There are other cases where biometrically that data gets uploaded centrally and it might be more convenient to be able to do X or Y without the friction. And then for security's sake, we do that often in times of crisis. We've seen that a lot, particularly in Melbourne with the pandemic, where we have done a lot of the QR code check-in stuff to enable contact tracers to be able to do their jobs, which is something that I personally was pretty willing to accept as a, you know, as a temporary measure for allowing this to happen for the sake of public health. Others were less comfortable with it, but it was one of those things where personally I felt like I could make that trade-off and it was all right. And then there are others. So we were talking about sort of the trade-off between privacy and security as well. Another example is the increased amount of surveillance infrastructure that got installed into the streets of Melbourne after the Burke Street massacre, for example, which was a case where a guy drove his car down the Burke Street Mall in Melbourne and killed quite a number of people one day just by hitting them with the car. It was pretty horrible. It was pretty scary for a lot of the people who were there and fairly traumatic. As a result of this, a lot of public infrastructure was put in place to try and prevent this thing from happening again. And to prevent copycats, some copycats did try at certain other points, which is pretty scary too. But we have these big concrete bollards in place to prevent vehicles from physically fitting in those spaces anymore. Some of this infrastructure has been turned into more pleasant, more aesthetically appealing things as well. And I don't necessarily think that preventing cars from driving on pedestrian strips is a bad thing. But there were other things that got put in place around then too, you know, increased surveillance, increased... There was a... PA system that got put in. I'm not entirely sure when, but it was also after a certain disaster to allow people to be given orders and directions when needed in case of a crisis, which itself is not surveillance. You know, a, a speaker is not a microphone, but is an example of infrastructure getting in, like put into our cities as a result of something happening 
and we make that kind of trade-off. What's interesting to think about is that we don't always, you know, at the time it might seem pretty acceptable to have this trade-off, particularly when we're in the heat of the moment or something has just happened and we're very passionate about it or still scared about it. And we think, okay, you know, this is acceptable because this it's going to stop this scary thing from happening. But also some crises, many crises are often temporary. Sometimes they're long, like a pandemic is a crisis, but it takes years. But one of the things that happens when the attention moves off of a crisis is that people tend to forget about it or they don't want to dwell on it, which is fair. Crises can be traumatic. But a lot of those security measures that get put in place during crises don't get rolled back in a timely way because people have forgotten about them. And sometimes they just don't get rolled back because even the people who put them there have forgotten about them. But also there could be cases where the people who've put them there during the crises realize that it is in their best interest not to remind people that those measures are there so that they can keep them afterwards. We saw a lot of stuff get put into place as a result of everything that happened after the September 11 terrorist attacks in New York, in the United States. And even though the political landscape has shifted significantly since then, we still justify a lot of stuff because of terrorism. And we're drawing on this same imagery and this same sort of collective sense of fear and dread. I don't mean to belittle that either. I don't think that it is unreasonable to want to protect the public en masse from horrible things happening like that. But I also think that there is definitely an element of using those things as an excuse to put in place measures that would be nice to have without any specific justification for them, or to put in place measures that are useful and you know are probably really good and useful in the right hands, but then if a government changes hands, could be really terrifying. You mentioned that sometimes it would be better to have the surveillance as an afterthought, so not always preparing that something will be bad at some point, and then we will have the steps in advance, but something happens and then tracing back the steps. Isn't preparation better than the afterthought? It can be. It can be. It is, again, a bit like what I was saying about the motives of the people doing the preparation. A lot of this is complicated to discuss because there are genuine threats and there is genuine stuff that we need to prepare for. And I don't want to belittle that. My main concern is that we sometimes use these things as a justification without considering their outcomes. So an example of this kind of preparation that isn't really in everybody's best interest was in Hong Kong, for example, when the protests were happening there a few years ago. And they installed a lot of high resolution CCTV cameras in the streets and were capturing images of the protests as they happened. Most facial recognition doesn't happen like it does on TV where you've got you know, a scan and it zooms in on someone's face and like their name pops up next to them and all of that, like the Terminator or whatever. Most cameras don't have that capability, and it doesn't really make sense to put that kind of scanning capability inside a camera itself. But cameras do have the capability to capture and transmit really high-resolution images, and those can then be sent and stored on machines that do have the processing power to then run it against a database of known faces and try to match patterns. So what we found happening in Hong Kong, and I say like we found like as if I was involved in that, but we as in the public, I suppose, what we saw as a people after protests in Hong Kong was like up to a week later, the folks who were there in the crowd getting knocks on their doors from the authorities saying, hey, you were here at this time because they had run the footage through facial recognition software to determine who was there. 
And so they had saved that information and stored it for later in order to prosecute the people who were protesting. So they had prepared this in advance in the sense that they had taken all of this footage, not because they intended to action it at the time itself, but because they wanted to use it later on to make sure that they could arrest every person who was in that protest. That's pretty creepy. And a lot of the stuff that gets captured and stored is not there because we have a lot of that Terminator-esque facial recognition capability right now, but that we will pretty soon. And when that happens, we can use all this historical information and then go back and start arresting people for stuff that happened five years ago when we had high resolution stuff, but we didn't have the capability to track them down. So we're also sort of gathering evidence about the movements of people for the majority, needlessly for most of the people who are in those kinds of things, just in case, you know, one of them happens to have attended the protest that annoyed the government that is in power at that time. I mean, you could say that was hyperbolic in science fiction, but it did happen in Hong Kong a few years ago. And it's that kind of use that really creeps me out. Well, not at the moment. We don't have, and we probably won't have for a while, the capability to actually match people as they come into shops, even though there have been cases of people being arrested for shoplifting because CCTV footage has been told that this is them, a prior shoplifter, for example. This has happened a few times in the United States, in New Zealand, where supermarkets, for example, have employed this. Another example of this, you know, happening in a publicish space. You know, the supermarket is technically private space, but it is something that the public uses fairly frequently. So I count it that way. Yeah, people being arrested as shoplifters when they enter a shop because footage has been matched and it has been said, okay, well, this person was the shoplifter. And more often than not, at least there have been so many reported instances of the wrong people being arrested, just people who look kind of similar because this software is really not accurate at all. It disproportionately affects people of color who are already more likely to be targeted in these cases. And it just reinforces the existing biases of the power structures that we already have. And that's the other thing that I say that I feel is really the inherent problem with smart cities like this is that it reinforces all of these biases that we already have. Any kind of sensor, any kind of data that you encode has to be interpreted by humans who make the decisions about what to do with it. And humans are biased. And usually the people who are in power enough to put these kinds of systems in place are usually the ones who have been in power for most of that society's existence. And it will probably codify their prejudices and reinforce them and enshrine them and make it harder to get away from them or picture anything different. How do you think we can find a balance between one disaster or one very, very bad event influencing the whole urban area? and being aware of the warnings and the coming disasters or the bad possibilities we could come across? How to balance these two? <laughs> I mean, if Solve I could answer that question, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, if I could answer this question, I'd be making so much in consulting fees, probably. It's hard. It's really hard. I think that it is something that doesn't have an answer. It requires constant interrogation and oversight and reframing and questioning all the time, because everything is usually good for something temporarily, as is the case with, say, QR check-in codes for health concerns, you know, public contact traces for diseases and pandemics. That's a mechanism that if it had been introduced for no reason, most people would have said, hell no. 
because there was a clear reason and a clear outcome, more people were willing to accept it. And it was positioned and understood to be a temporary thing, which is now being wound back as a lot of restrictions and a lot of these measures have been wound back. And I think that that clarity is really important. Another thing that worked really well for that was having a very clear purpose for it and being really, really, really transparent about what that purpose was and how it was going to be used and the understanding that it was temporary. So I think that that might be one of the elements to striking that balance, being honest about what this is for and why. Yeah. I don't think it's going to solve everything, but it's certainly something that seems to have worked for the most part in this case. And of course, there are lots of people who disagree and it was very difficult to comply. And they could also have done far more invasive things, which they certainly have tried to do in some places, such as you know a lot of the proposed things about tracking people by their phones and things like that, which people overwhelmingly rejected in this country. So it's imperfect. It relies on that element of human interaction. You had to sort of physically check in. You had to make the effort to do that. It meant that it wasn't perfect, but it was from all that I've been able to tell from just being a (laughs) member of the public reading the news throughout this entire pandemic period, it was effective in helping the contact tracers do their jobs for that purpose that it was designed for, for the most part. It wasn't without its problems, but certainly it was something that appeared to work in some ways. And I think that there are things like, for example, the sensors on rubbish bins are another one where there's a very clear reason for that. You can clearly see the benefit of that. The downsides of that are difficult to imagine. There's always the potential for people to use the Wi-Fi. The fact that trash cans are now networked devices as their own sort of personal hacking challenge, I guess. But on the whole, the intended design of these things has no malicious or sinister purpose. If it was scanning the trash, you know, maybe, (laughs) but it doesn't, you know, it's just determining how full the thing is and reporting back. But when it gets more nebulous and they sort of say, you know, because terrorism might happen, that is vaguer. It definitely means some very specific things to some people who still have very clear images of terrorism, meaning, you know, say what happened on 9-11, for example, which is one of the things it can mean. And we've had lots of like the Burke Street massacre was another one, which was a different scale of terrorism and a different kind, but still terrorism. But it is a more nebulous thing to try and protect against. And it doesn't matter how many measures you put in place for a lot of this stuff, because it is so nebulous, you can't sort of protect against all elements of it. That doesn't necessarily mean that you then need to surveil everything just in case. But that is the path that many governments, including this one, have been going down in a lot of ways to try and get the outcome of protecting people when it does happen or in these specific cases but without a considered and clear-cut reason, as opposed to a more nebulous reason, it means that you scrape up a lot of stuff about people that really doesn't need to be captured and probably interferes in some way or another with the regular operating of human society in public spaces, Mm -hmm. I guess. What is the difference between private and public for you? There's a definition that has to do with who owns what pieces of land in an area. You know, the streets being public and shops being private, for example, or homes being private or whatever. Then there's also, I guess, the social sense of that, where, like I was talking about supermarkets before, it is a private business and that space that you enter is controlled by that private business, but also it is a 
piece of public infrastructure, I guess, in some ways that people can use. Like a supermarket is something that anybody should feel they can visit to buy things from. It's not restricted. So I think that it is those kinds of places where people expect to be able to freely move around to conduct the business of their lives in that social sense. That's not a legal definition. But again, I'm not a lawyer. That's not what we're talking about. (laughs) What can you do for digital privacy as a normal citizen or as an activist as yourself? Or what do you see what can we do in the future for digital privacy? Hmm. There are a lot of things that have been proposed that are kind of anti-surveillance activist moves. You might have seen some of the, particularly with the facial recognition stuff or even the facial detection stuff. There are you know, artists who've experimented with face paint and makeup in jagged asymmetrical shapes to break up the shape of the face so that it can't be detected as easily. Apparently juggalo makeup. So if you're a fan of the insane clown posse, that is also going to be, uh, so if you want to go out Become a juggalo. That's my answer. That kind of like adversarial stuff is interesting. I've seen people make dresses out of fabric with like adversarial patterns printed all over it, like kind of jagged shapes and things that to computer vision and to certain algorithms will look like a certain pattern. And so, you know, you can find one of those, wear one of those. There's a guy who makes what he calls reflecticles, which are glasses that with the frames, they have a reflector on them that can reflect both visible light and infrared light. So it just shines back and kind of distorts any image of your face. If the light's shining, particularly with night vision cameras, it just distorts it entirely. And there are people who've made, there was the paparazzi scarf that did a similar kind of reflective thing as well to just destroy paparazzi shots. So there's like all this kind of adversarial fashion stuff that you can do in terms of being recognized. And then there are the people who say, well, you know, don't carry your phone with you when you go out because that's another data point because your phone pinging off the Wi-Fi at a mall, for example, if you've ever joined the Wi-Fi network in a shopping mall, they use that to track traffic patterns around shopping malls. So that's a thing. And they use Bluetooth in the smart ads as well. If they've got Bluetooth beacons in them, they can also track people's movements around. They won't necessarily know that it is you specifically, but they'll know that it is an individual and they'll know that pattern that you've walked and the stores you've been into and that kind of stuff. So, you know, don't carry a phone. A lot of these things are just not practical for everyday use. They're not things that most people are able to do or things that most people would want to do. And people should just be able to live their lives and go about doing their thing without needing to worry about this stuff shouldn't feel like it has to be a constant battle just to get outside and participate in a public space in this way. So really the best and most effective form of protest is to talk about these issues with people, to raise awareness of them. If you're walking past a big ad, like a video ad, have a look, see if it's got a camera. And then the next time, if it does, you know, point it out to someone else, say, hey, you realize they're looking at you while you're doing this? Raise that awareness and start talking to people about it. And asking for change, asking for better. This also doesn't mean you have to be completely anti-technology in cities. That can be really good ways of using it. But what we don't have is usually adequate safeguards or controls around how this data that we're gathering gets used and who it gets used by and whether the individual who's captured in it has the right to opt out, which is something that gets discussed in Europe in particular, but really isn't a thing in Australia. So the better way to protest is to try and fight back, I guess, to fight back in terms of making 
arguments and asking the people who are putting these things in place and, you know, demanding of the people who are putting these things in place that we can do better because we all have to live in these spaces. They're for us and they should serve us and they shouldn't be serving the people who are in charge. What are the digital innovations in the urban sphere and what are the advantages and disadvantages you are most excited or most concerned about? Yeah, it can be good. One of the things I've really liked is the way that we've been using technology to track and build better bicycle paths, particularly in the city of Melbourne, to try and understand, particularly with the way the pandemic's been going, to trial that out. And you, I mean, this is very old technology, but you see it all the time where they've got sensors on the roads to detect how many cars or bikes have gone past somewhere. So they've done a lot of that kind of experimentation with pop-up bicycle lanes during the pandemic when the roads were a bit quieter and they could because the traffic wasn't as high. As a cyclist, I feel pretty good about that. It's been really nice to see that kind of stuff crop up and get used and be available for people. So I think that's great. And I think that kind of stuff where you are looking for patterns in order to improve things can be really beneficial. I spoke a bit earlier about the way that shopping malls will track people with the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth in that they've put around their buildings. That can be really creepy. It does get used for really creepy things like tracking who's going into what shops or you know what individuals wear, and then recognizing when an individual returns to a shopping mall, which is also kind of gross. What's better about it is that you know it can help you understand, for example, the way that people are moving through a building in a way where you might have normally had to have you know people parked in there for days analyzing foot traffic manually, so that then you can plan better fire exits, you can plan better amenities where those things are needed. That kind of stuff is really helpful. I've mentioned the rubbish bins a few times because I like them and I think it's kind of cool. And I think that that's another example of a really great idea. You know, why not gather that data about which ones are being used more when they need to be emptied to provide better public services like that? I think those things can be really great. Even just the advent of, and this has been a thing for a while too, but definitely like smarter timers on lights and things like that to allow public lights to be turned on when the sun goes down, not just necessarily at a certain time of day, but to detect when the sun has gone down and turn that light on so that you know, you're saving that energy as well as providing that service exactly when it's needed. I think there's a really, like, there are a lot of really good things to come out of them, to come out of technology and the way that we use it in public spaces. As long as we're thinking about it and we're thinking about the consequences. And my main thing, particularly being someone who works in the digital security space, is to think about not just the use cases, but the abuse cases, which is the thing that we're really bad at thinking about most of the time. How could this go wrong? Not because I want everybody to wear little tinfoil hats and be paranoid. I don't think that's a very healthy way to live. I also think that deployed strategically, it's really important. And we do need to have some aspect of it in thinking about what we do. We are you know, planning for the worst case when we put in, say, safeguards that are meant to protect against terrorism, for example. But we also need to think about how and what we're doing, why, where, what the impacts of that are going to be, and what the benefits are. And I think that while those kinds of assessments have certainly been made many times over, it often gets weighed against sort of, you know, is it security or privacy, this kind of thing, and what matters more. And that erosion of privacy has not mattered as much as it should, I think. We talk a little bit in the privacy advocacy space about the chilling effect, which is something that happens in online spaces a bit, quite a lot, actually, when people are aware they're being surveilled 
they self-moderate, they self-censor. They don't say all the things that they would otherwise say. And the more that surveillance increases its power, the more that happens. People self-censor. They don't have the freedom of expression or even the freedom of inquiry that they used to. People are scared to Google certain things just to learn about them. You know, you wouldn't want to Google terrorism because you're afraid of ending up on a watch list, even if you just wanted to understand what it was, because it is a valid thing to want to learn about. So that kind of chilling effect has a really disastrous effect on, you know, the development of people's learning. If they're afraid to learn about certain topics and to understand them, then it's difficult to move past fear of them and into a deeper understanding. But I think that the same applies to the public spaces that we live in and work in and shop in and all of those things to cities. If we are aware that we're being surveilled and increasingly aware of how we're being surveilled or how we're being perceived, so not just you were here at this time, but also you were here at this time, you presented as this gender, you were in this particular kind of mood, which is something that is being done mostly for advertising purposes, but it's very creepy. If it gets done as it is proposed, it has been proposed many times, you would do that to try and detect someone who was about to like start stabbing people in a shopping mall, for example, based on the way that they were walking or the way they were behaving. And on the surface of it, yeah, great, we don't want random stabbings. And on the other hand, how do you define what that looks like? Somebody who looks like they're in distress might also be somebody who has physical disabilities, for example. And again, we reinforce these structures against people who are already less privileged in these spaces and reinforce these biases. So weighing that up in what we implement and how we do it and thinking about the abuse cases and thinking about the net detriment that it could have on societies to put these things in place in our cities, I think is the really important thing. And something that we probably don't talk about enough because it gets kind of wishy-washy and academic and philosophical rather than cold, hard facts. Why are you perpetually raging against the ghost in the machines? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think it was maybe 2016 or something. I gave a conference talk and I called it the Rage Against the Ghost in the Machine. Sort of riffing off of, you know, Rage Against the Machine, the band. And also the concept of the ghost in the machine, which is a way of, you know, talking about the spirit or the soul or the thing that drives the flesh. Because I'm very interested in those kinds of concepts and thinking about how when we gather data about the way that people behave online, we are in essence capturing something of the way that they think and of the way that they learn. If you drew up a big graph of, you know, somebody visits Wikipedia and you've got a few hours to sink into a nice wiki hole. And you drew up a graph of all of the articles that you clicked while you were reading and branched out and learned, you know, you're learning something really interesting there about the way that you learn or explore things. And when you do that at the scale that Facebook or Google does, where they track basically everything we do all the time, that paints a really, really detailed portrait of the way that we are. So what I was interested in was how, how much of that, when you lay it on top of a machine learning algorithm, could you use to emulate the way that someone is so that you could pretend to be them realistically. You know, there's metadata, as in all of the data about data. So not the contents of, say, a phone call or an email, but the subject of that email and the time it was sent and who and from, you know, to and from and all of that, that tells you quite a lot about the recipient and the sender without you actually knowing the contents of the thing. If you have enough of that data, you can tell quite a lot about something. And then the idea of, you know, like seances back in the day, like in the Victorian era, seances where they were 
people would sit around in circles and hold hands and like try to summon the spirits of the dead and stuff. Like most of the people who were trying to do this were either trying to do it for fun or, you know, people who claimed that they were mediums who could contact the dead. We usually, you know, tricksters who had some kind of stuff going on that they were trying to just scam people out of money. But one of the interesting things they used in these scams sometimes was this thing that got called ectoplasm, which was like this substance that, you know, if you were a medium who was in contact with the spirit, sometimes it was like this thing, like this white goo or something that would come out of your mouth or your nose or your ears to show that you were in contact with the dead. It was super weird, you know, super fake, but really interesting. So for me, ecto is kind of the, ecto is like outside of, med is beyond. I think it might be the other way around. I've forgotten my Greek. But anyway, what I was interested in was that ecto metadata. So, you know, like if you've got all of that device, that data that's been extruded out of you, and then you sort of spin it up outside of yourself and have a look at it, how much does it look like you? What does it become? And how much of the substance of ourselves and the way that we are and the way that we think and the patterns of our behavior can we extrapolate on top of when machine learning algorithms get good enough to do that? Like right now, you can say, give it a picture of, you can write it a description and say, give me a picture of Elon Musk acquiring Twitter. And you get some really interesting results, which you can see just to date this episode really precisely. You can see like really interesting art being generated out of this stuff. But what I was really interested in was, you know, how much of a person could you generate out of this stuff? And what would that mean if you could? And I know that that sounds like a Black Mirror episode because, you know, it kind of is. But it's also something that I want to consider as a realistic question and that I think needs to play into data gathering and the way that we consider that for the future, not just like we were talking about with, with the photos of the protesters in Hong Kong, not just for what we can do today, but for what we could do in two years or 15 or 50 with the data that we gather today. So that's kind of what I say when I think about the ghost of the machine is all the pieces of ourselves that we leave behind when metadata is gathered about us by moving around spaces, by moving around the internet, all of that stuff. And what does it mean when we die, you know? Could we resurrect ourselves? Not in any meaningful sense, but would it be enough to be enough of a semblance of ourselves that people could talk to it? That kind of thing. Could we, while we were still living, spin up one of ourselves just to talk to, to bounce things off of? Could we do that with celebrities? Would that become a marketable thing? If you got like, say, Lizzo's essence or something? I don't know. But that idea of the ghost in the machine, this way of all of those imprints of ourselves that we leave behind in metadata that people seem to not really care about that much or don't think is private. It's not technically PII, personal information or anything like that, but it is really telling about ourselves. What does that mean? What could it be used for? And how much do we think about it? How much do the companies that gather it think about it? Some people think it's fascinating. It really creeps me out, honestly. That's why I say it's like raging against the ghost of the machine is because I really don't want this to be a thing. I would really like more people to be thinking about it and talking about it. And I wanted that for a long time. So the raging is against the concept of having a ghost in the machine as a picture, as a timestamp of your resemblance in the machine. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I understand that it is creepy. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but just thinking about how our habits, how much are we our habits? How much are we the data we leave behind? How much are mm. we the websites we are visiting and so on? It's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a lot of art on this subject 
and literature on the subject and film and media and all kinds of stuff. It's worth investigating. I would really like technologists to actually think about it. And then what is your role in establishing the better future of cities? That's a great question. In the first instance, I'm glad to be here and talking about it because if this conversation sparks somebody to think about something that they didn't think about before in a different way or for the first time, then that's great. And if they end up being a person who is then motivated to make some change in the world around them or to care about something they didn't care about before, then that's awesome. So part of it, I think, is that I hope I can spread awareness of some of the issues that at least I'm seeing and also engage in conversations with people about them because this is all just like my opinion (laughs) and my opinion doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's important to have it be part of the dialogue I don't think that the stuff that I say should be what we do either, because that would be just as dictatorial as somebody deciding that we all must be captured on camera for posterity and just in case a crime happens later. So I want to contribute to the public dialogue about it in a way that represents how I feel about it and hopefully be heard and listened to and have that taken into account when we're building this kind of stuff. And also, you know, I can show you how to do some pretty cool face paint if you don't want to have your face detected. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I don't want to disrupt your whole evening. No, do you have sorry. any closing comments or requests for the audience? Next time that you walk down the street, have a look at all of the stuff that is around you, all of the things, all of the cameras. See if you can count how many there are. Have a look up on the the electricity poles and the telephone poles and all of the other things. See what's up there. This is best on a maybe a, a busy urban street in a city center somewhere, but any street really. Just look at those things. Pay attention to the public infrastructure around you. Just take an hour and walk slowly up that street and have a look because I think it could be instructive and may cause you to see the city in a different way. Don't forget to do neck exercises. You'll be looking up a lot. And don't forget to pay attention to who's around you. You don't want to walk into them. But have a walk through your spaces with that mindset. See how many cameras you can spot in places you didn't think about them being there before. And if that bothers you, then start contributing to the conversation if you haven't already. Because I think that the best way that we can combat this is by talking about it. A public space should belong to all of us. Amazing closing request for the audience. Thank you very much, Lily, for appearing on the podcast. Thank you. It was really interesting to hear from Lily that with conversations, we can create proper safety and privacy at the same time, not to mention her views and experiences about the ghost in the machine. You can find out more about Lily online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Lily's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well. And thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast? 